Well, it's good to be with you again, and it really is a privilege uh, once again to be here. I'm grateful uh, for the invitation, and I do consider it you know, a real honor just to be among God's people, especially a congregation, not my own, uh, to be entrusted with such. Uh, that either says a lot or a little about your elders. Thank you for letting me be here. Um, I want to begin with this quote from Nietzsche. He wrote, Christianity wants to destroy, shatter, stun, intoxicate. There's only one thing it does not want, moderation. And for this reason, it is its deepest, in its deepest meaning, barbaric, Asiatic, ignoble, and un-Greek. Uh, if we can summarize the first talk by saying uh, that God said, let there be too much of the good stuff, and that God is excessive, that he's not practical, he's not thrifty or efficient by our Western standards, he's not balanced, you know, he's not the via media, the middle way. Um, and if we can say, as we, we heard in that kind of final toast, that God delights, that he has loves, not reasons uh, for what he does. Uh, when we hear that, we have to bump up against the fact that while God may be that way, you and I, uh, ever since the fall, uh, prone towards moderation. You know, you are a moderate, I'm a moderate. You know, our Western sensibilities uh, built on the stiff backs uh, of Greek ideals have been shaped from the jump by this idea of moderation. Um, I'm not going to make too many Dutch jokes today, but uh, if I make any, if they slip out, just know that I'm, my mother's 100% full-fledged Dutch. Uh, I don't know if it gives me a pass, but um, my wife's Hispanic. I like to mean that makes I can make Hispanic jokes uh, around her family because I'm kind of in. It doesn't always work quite like I think it should. <laughs> But we, unlike God, do like to believe in the middle way about everything. You know, our North American life, for all of its gross gluttony, uh, all its technological lust, for all of its processed pornography uh, and its approved narcissism, it is not a place of too much, though it may seem like it on the outside, but it's a place of far too little. Uh, We teach our kids, for instance, not to scream and our boys not to cry. Uh, And even as we grow into adulthood, seldom will you see people truly weep uh, at a funeral or laugh uncontrollably. You know, we're kind of a stiff upper lip kind of people or or Goldilocks people, as I've liked to say in the past. You know, we go through life trying not to be too hard or too soft, uh, but we want it to be just right. Um, And just right by our standards often means moderate. Um, But that is not how it was intended. We were not intended to be moderate people or to water down truths to kind of some tempted middle. Um, We were meant to be fat-souled, kind of whole-bodied people. We were meant to image from the beginning our maker. And if he is excessive, and if he delights, uh, and if he has loves, not reasons, uh, if we are going to image him in any way rightly, we should, uh, at least in some shadowy form, see that in our own character and ways. We were made to love well and to cry hard, to laugh harder, to believe all things as if our life depended on it, and then to talk and to act as if we actually believe such things. Uh, As G.K. Chesterton wrote, you'll you'll find that I steal from him often because why try to do what he's already done? Uh, The church has always had a healthy hatred of pink. No no offense to you pink lovers, but um, it hates the combination of two colors, which is the feeble expedition of the philosophers. We have come to believe that you can have too much of a good thing, a blasphemous belief, which at one blow wrecks all the heavens 
that men have hoped for. And what does he mean when he says that? Uh, to say that you can have too much of a good thing really is to undo not only heaven, which is you know life and life eternally uh, and life abundantly. Uh, are we going to say at some point there like, yeah, this you know too much of a good thing. We should we should end this. But to, it's to speak of God Himself, you know, the infinite and eternal, immeasurable God. Uh, if in one sense is really too much. I mean, he he's this ever giving fountain of who He is. It will never cease. Uh, he will never cease to amaze us, and we will never cease trying to know and understand and peer into His wonder. I mean, think about it. Can God love too much? Can we love Him too much? Is there a way to do it to where it's just you know, we went a little too far in these things. Can we be too kind or too just or too joyful or too alive? Temperance is not the goal of your life. Um, excess is the goal. Um, now, before I get stoned, here we I'll cover myself in some Reformed mission out here. Um, uh, Augustine taught, you know, when he was teaching on the cardinal virtues, that temperance was only necessary. It was only a necessary virtue in order to be in service of other virtues being excessive. So, he says, so that love might give itself entirely and without restraint to that which is loved, there can never be too much love for God, nor too little of the impulses which impede it. So he's saying, if you want to give yourself fully to something, well, you have to temper other things in order to be excessive in the best thing. So, you know, temperance is not some, you know, uh, uh, you know, moral standard that we then apply to everything. It's something we apply in order to be excessive or over the top or to give ourselves wholly and fully uh, as humans to the, to the things that are right and good and true and beautiful. Um, so if all of that's true, how should we live? Uh, what does it call us uh, who are made in his image to do in this life? How are, do we, are we to interact with and how are we to embrace the world that God has made, this world of people and things? Um, well, if I could sum it up in one line, it would just be this, to enjoy the gift. Um, but then we'd be done talking, so I've got to say some other stuff. Um, if all being, you know, all existence is gratuitous and thus all creation is a gift, our duty really is to embrace and enjoy that which is given. And I want to look at that under these headings that are in your notebook. But, but first, we do this by looking up. Uh, and this is just my way of saying being thankful. Uh, the radical givenness of life demands that we look up to the giver of it. Uh, it demands that in all of my relationship to people and things, I begin from a place of gratitude, a place of reception, right? Uh, and then gratitude in the fact that, None of this is my doing. Uh, I'm just the recipient of all of these good things. Uh, and that includes my relationship to the seemingly mundane things of life, things like food and drink uh, and so forth. I mean, if you want to know your role in the story, if you want to know what your job is you know, in this world, there's a lot of ways to go about this, but gratitude is nearly the sum and substance of it. Uh, and we'll talk about what we mean uh, wholly by that word to come. Um, you may not think that that sounds like much, um, but remember, you and I weren't needed to begin with, um, so we shouldn't expect, you know, uh, our, our role to be some, you know, uh, of such great consequence uh, that without uh, us doing these major feats as people, God just can't get anything done. Uh, our goal from the garden on has been to be a thankful and joyful people. 
Um, and we, of course, fouled that up. But uh, if, if you're not buying that, look at what 1 Timothy 4, 3 says. Uh, I can't exegete the whole text, but at the beginning it says, Paul's talking about those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So uh, there's, again, the, the, always the two taboos. You know, there's, uh, there's sexual abstinence being, you know, uh, foisted on the church, you know, abstain from marriage, and that had a lot to do with just kind of what then happens in the, you know, the one flesh union. Abstain from foods, you know, we don't want to get tangled up in the wrong things there. And Paul says, you know, these things were created with a purpose, and the purpose was to be received with thanksgiving. And notice what he says in verse 4, for everything that God, uh, everything created by God is good. It's almost like I stole my point from last night from that, but I did. Uh, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Uh, Paul can, can look at the world and says, okay, here's the rules. Everything's good. Don't reject anything as long as you're grateful. Uh, and that just sounds really scary to us, uh, I think, at times in our own maybe, you know, Christian experience uh, and how we, it has been given to us as far as how we think about things. Uh, again, Romans 1.20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Now, there's a lot to be said there, but minimally Paul's saying God's invisible attributes, his power, his wisdom, uh, so many amazing things about God he says, are clearly seen in the things he's made. Not by looking at the thing and then reflecting on attributes, but by looking at the thing, seeing it for what it is. In that thing, God is revealed, which is why he goes on to say, so that men are without excuse for although they knew God, how did they know him? By looking at his stuff, according to Paul in this text. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Paul's saying they could see God everywhere and with everything that they interacted, but they didn't do the necessary thing, which was to honor him in thanksgiving for the things that they were encountering him in uh, through his creation. And obviously that's not talking about you know, redemptive knowledge, but the knowledge of God as creator and maker and sustainer of all things. So man comes into a world into which uh, everything is offered to him as a gift. And every gift that's offered to him is a revelation of the maker. Uh, Because all that is exists as freely given by God, and all that is reveals God, uh, remember creation is his word. Uh, You know, his words uh, are what make up our world. They speak, uh, they not only speak of him, it is his speech. (laughs) You know, we encounter God's word everywhere we go in this world. All that is, is blessed by God as good. Uh, It has his stamp on it, um, and he calls it good. And a gift that is good from a giver who is good, given to us as a good part of his creation, has one response that is necessary. And what's fascinating about us as human beings made in the image of God, we are the only part of the creation that has this particular mandate on them, that they are to receive the gifts from the blessed giver and bless him in return. Uh, 
that there's just be this circle from heaven to earth back to heaven that is continuous uh, because you can't go anywhere without encountering him. You can't touch anything without knowing him. You can't eat or drink or sleep or you can't do anything without finding God in the things that he has made. You know, not in a pantheistic sense that he's one with his creation, but he's always being revealed in his creation while never being uh, simultaneously one and the same as his creation. And our role in the story is to receive it and be glad. Be glad to him uh, uh, that uh, we are to respond with this blessing. I mean, think of the fall. There is one food not given. There is one no in all of creation. There's one thing that God says, no blessing for this. Everything else you can see that's you know, beautiful to the eye and good for food is all yours for the taking. And your role is to take it and to be happy with it and me in it. Uh, And in this world uh, that was all given, there was only one thing in it that would be loved for itself if it was partaken of, right? This one no, this one no on this tree, if you were to eat of that, you can't bless God while you're doing it, right? It's a dead-end street. It's a one-way interaction. If I'm going to eat of it, it's going to be for me, and nothing else. It's going to stop there, and there won't be this reciprocal reception and thanksgiving going on. I mean, while this is commonplace now, uh, our natural dependence upon the world and the things of the world was never meant to drive us away from God. God was never worried that you were going to be in a world of beautiful stuff that was genuinely good to eat. Uh, or to be in a world where, you know, male and female could engage in sexual activity. He was, that was never an issue that he uh, looked at and thought, I better make them disembodied spirits so things don't go awry. He intended for all of those things, again, to be revelatory of him and for us to enjoy them and in doing so to enjoy him in the process. But while they were never meant us to drive, away, drive us away from God, We were to recognize him in all things. Gratitude, I mean, just gratitude by itself. If you're ever, you know, we have Thanksgiving coming up here. Uh, That that holiday assumes a whole bunch of stuff that this country has forgotten. Uh, But gratitude assumes, uh, if nothing else, it assumes God. It at least assumes a being greater than yourself, an other that's outside of you that you have to be grateful to. Without uh, Without gratitude, the world becomes a closed circuit where we become the creator and the meaning maker, and the end of all things, right? Things get used, and they end with us, right? And there's no time for reflection or gratitude or graces in it. Um, In ingratitude, we don't acknowledge the maker. We use things for our own blessing, you know, full stop. And to do so, of course, is to worship the created thing, the created thing being you more even than the thing that you're using, which we all know to be, you know, the sin of idolatry. Uh, one author writes this, and uh, he, he's, he's an atheist writing from this perspective. He says, gratitude is a cornerstone of most spiritual traditions. But gratitude just doesn't sit organically with me as part of the process. I am very clear that I am the creator. And I'm one of those folks who have created every single thing on their wish list in a short period. I celebrate it. I delight in it but I don't feel appreciation or gratitude for it any more than I feel it for my own arm. Interesting analogy that he uses there. It just is. It's simply what I'm up to. 
The element of gratitude feels like asking and receiving from a source outside of you. Now, if I were a baker making many cakes a day instead of manifestations, I wouldn't take a new cake out of the oven and have gratitude for it. I know that if I mix the ingredients, put it in, take it out, there will be a cake there, one that I made. I can, can and do acknowledge that the whole process is pretty groovy, but again, gratitude for receiving always feels to me like I'm thanking an entity outside of myself. Uh, at least he's consistent, I will say that. Uh, notice, for the author, there's no thanksgiving needed for his accomplishment. His life, the process, uh, he put time in, he gets the rewards, it's a simple equation. It would be as silly, he says, as being grateful for his own arm, an arm that he apparently sprouted and crafted by his own hard work and determination. But that again shows the folly of our idolatry, letting the credit end with the creature. Uh, he begins to even think his life is his own doing, much like this man uh, in the text. Um, you know, Chesterton says, you know, the worst moment for an atheist is when he's really thankful and he has no one to thank. <laughs> Um, but for us, the opposite is true, or should be true. As Chesterton writes, children are grateful when Santa Claus puts in their stockings gifts of toys or sweets. Could I not be grateful to Santa Claus when he put in my stockings the gift of two miraculous legs? We thank people for birthday presents of cigars and slippers. Can I thank no one for the birthday present of birth? You know, Chesterton is saying there's nothing you can run into that isn't cause for thanksgiving, you know, to look up and to be grateful. Notice the same action can be a, be a glorious response to God the giver or the most vile act of idolatry. You can either, you know, bake a cake and delight in the wonder of the whole thing, uh, or you can bake a cake and say, well, it's my invention. Uh, and one is wholly holy before God, and the other is the worst form of atheism, you know, not being grateful. Uh, it is not the outward act at all times that determines whether something is a sin, but whether there's gratitude present at all in the interaction. And since God made it all, and you encounter him in all of it, there's nothing for which you cannot be grateful. Uh, you say grace before meals, all right, says Chesterton, but I say grace before the play and the opera, Grace before the concert and the pantomime, grace before I open a book, and grace before sketching, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip my pen in the ink. Our first call as creatures is gratitude, but we see that gratitude is not easily ginned up for grown folks. Um, so the second thing we need to see after simply being called to look up is that we do need to grow down, uh, you know, to become children again in the best sense of the word. Children understand all is a miracle and are filled with wonder. I mean, I watched one child play with sugar packets last night, and they were amazed by the whole thing. Um, is it surprising if we're called to be grateful and full of wonder at God and his world and our dependence on it that Jesus said that we are to become like children to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And the younger we get in this respect, the better. Uh, Chesterton writes, a child of seven is excited by being told that Tommy opened the door and saw a dragon. But a child of three is excited by being told that Tommy opened the door. <laughs> you know, we need to see the world as wonderful again, even though we've been here so long. 
even though we have failed in one sense to be like our Father in heaven. Uh, if you've never read chapter 4 of Orthodoxy, uh, The Ethics of Elfland by G.K. Chesterton, uh, Orthodoxy by, by Chesterton, uh, the chapter Ethics of Elfland is well worth your time. The first few pages are definitely heavy sledding uh, philosophically, but after that it becomes very delightful. But this is what he wrote, writes concerning God and children. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free. Therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. <laughs> For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. Now he's answering the atheist who says the world is a machine, the sun rises and sets, and if it just keeps on rising and setting, then surely you know it's some sort of mechanism because a personal God wouldn't do it the same way over and over. But Chesterton goes on. Perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony like a child. Is it possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon? It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but he's never got tired of making them. It may be that he is the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. Well, that is, you know, a beautiful picture, but the question is how do we get back, you know? How do we stop being, you know, uh, the curmudgeons that we are? Um, I don't know about you, but I always relate more with Scrooge uh, than with the, the joyful uh, uh, parties uh, of Dickens' novels. I'm like, yeah, you know, that's more me, uh, usually during the holiday seasons. What can help us grow down? Well, what we've already discussed this acknowledgement that we are not necessary, knowing this to be true, that we are not necessary, but we are here, that life really is a gift, that God doesn't need you to complete himself, and as wonderful as you are and as much as your mom may like you, you know, you really are a luxury in God's economy, not a necessity. Um, and not only that we're not necessary, but that we're not worthy. Not only are we here, but after we've messed things up here, we have been redeemed by the God of all creation who owed us nothing other than his own wrath and justice. You know, the task we were given, we fouled up. We got our dirty smudges on everything. Uh, our sin, even now, shows the hopelessness of us getting the job done on our own. <laughs> um, but our works now can't even help us. They can't get us back to the garden, and they surely can't get us to heaven. In fact, God, you know, and... Uh, here, here we go. Uh, God doesn't need any of your good works, not one of them. Jesus has already accomplished it all, uh, and there's nothing, there's not one iota you can add to it. All your good works, as we'll learn, even those are superfluous, uh, not wasteful in the, the way that we think of it, but truly they are excesses because they are not needful for the, crea uh, the recreation of all things that is already done and accomplished in Christ. Uh, these two facts taken together, that we're not necessary and that our redemption is all of a gift, uh, take, taken together they mean that in the big story of the universe, uh, again, sorry about this, that you and I are really not that big of a deal. And that gives us permission, permission from God to stop taking ourselves so seriously. Um, you know, Paul said this, uh, and he said it more rudely than I am. So, uh, you know, there's not many of us who are wise or important. You know, not many of us are making a name for ourselves in this world. 
Uh, we are, when we look at ourselves, when, you know, the people in this room that you truly know, you know how weak and frail they are, how spiteful they can be. I mean, you know your own heart and the bitternesses you hold there and your own insecurities and all the things you're trying to cover up. We are not that big of a deal, uh, no matter how much time we spend trying to convince ourselves and everyone else that we may be. Uh, maybe you remember toward the close of The Hobbit, uh, one of my favorite scenes uh, in that particular book, when Bilbo is remarking the, on the effects that the journey has had on him. Um, and Gandalf, letting him kind of, you know, go on his tangent, sits back and finally answers him and says, uh, you don't really suppose, do you, that all your adventures and escapes were managed by mere luck just for your sole benefit? You are a very fine person, Mr. Baggins, and I am very fond of you, but you are only quite a little fellow in the wide world after all. To which Bilbo has the perfect response. Thank goodness, said Bilbo, laughing. And he handed him the tobacco jar. <laughs> I love that close because Gandalf is able to show that while Bilbo had an amazing adventure, it was never really about him to begin with. There was a bigger story with much wider ramifications in which he was only a small player. And we often believe because we're the center of our own world <laughs> that we are actually the center of the world. And that's just not true, you know. Think of all the billions of the people in the world who do not know you, and they all think they're the most important thing in their world, too. You know, you're all competing for the same small space. These truths help us to remember that we are not the center, that we really are quite small after all, and that is good news. That's not bad news. Uh, you know, notice Bilbo's response. He's like, well, thank goodness, now I'll just have a smoke, you know. Uh, that we really can be handed the tobacco jar because we can't, aren't the center. We can relax and enjoy, take in the good, and know that someone far greater than us is actually in charge, and therefore we don't need to be in control. We don't need to always be managing our appearance and keeping the world spinning. We can just, you know, uh, metaphorically or literally speaking, have a smoke and be grateful. The only thing more impish than a person who cannot perceive what things should be taken seriously is the one who takes everything seriously. Or still worse, the one who takes themselves seriously. As Chesterton wrote, angels can fly because they take themselves lightly. You know, how do we know if we've done this, if we've taken ourselves too seriously? I mean, there's some pretty tale, easy telltale signs to read. Business, business comes before life and family. Work assumes importance only in terms of salary and benefits, never in terms of enjoyment or service or vocation. Making a name for oneself holds a higher priority than living, at, living in peace with your neighbors or your family. Going to a prestigious college outweighs the saving of one's soul. These sorts of things are all big hints that we take ourselves too seriously. Um, and if any of those hit you, which was the intention, uh, then we know that we all suffer from this problem. And the one thing that, again, reshapes us and brings us down to size, but also gifts us good, is the gospel of Christ, right? It shows us who we really are. We're not what we thought we were. But it shows us that we're loved anyway because of the mercies of God. We must grow down to be thankful. Uh, it helps our eyes look up if we realize we're not the center of things. But, of course, being thankful also helps us grow down. Because the more we look up, the smaller we will see that we actually are. Um, so what else are we called to do as receivers of this great gift uh, of delight? I would say the third thing is to be delighted uh, by simply looking around 
And what I mean by that is just becoming observant or learning to delight in everything, to see things for what they are and to just enjoy them. Um, I'm going to quote Chester to death in this particular talk. I'm sorry. Um, he says, there are no un uninteresting things, only uninterested people. Um, if, you've, if you've ever met someone that like really like gets excited about lizards or something, or we had a guy at our church that loved insects. I mean, he could talk to you for, I just remember thinking like, he really, you know, is fond. This is amazing to him. And I thought, I have no interest in them. But the more I listened to him, I thought, well, I guess these things are interesting. You know, I just never knew. The whole world is full of wonder. The question is, are, is there anyone that's willing to wonder at it, you know, to engage it for what it is? Um, part of gratitude, in fact, maybe the main part, and I want you to hear this. I think gratitude, we often think is gratitude is, you know, saying thank you. Uh, but one of the parts of gratitude is simply delighting in the good. And once delighting in it, making right use of it. That is a form of gratitude, you know, not merely, you know, sending thank you notes. Uh, God delights. He creates when he doesn't need. He saves when it adds nothing to him. He does it for his own good pleasure. And he has filled the world with delight. And he wants us to take a look at them and simply notice and delight ourselves and in so doing be delighted with him. I mean, uh, it really is that simple. Uh, Robert Capon writes it this way, man's real work is to look at the things of the world and to love them for what they are. That is, after all, what God does. And man was not made in God's image for nothing. The fruits of his attention can be seen in all of the arts, crafts, and sciences. It can cost him time and effort, but it pays handsomely. Uh, how much curious and loving attention was expended by the first man who looked hard enough at the inside of trees, the entrails of cats, the hind ends of horses, and the juice of pine trees to realize he could turn them all into the first fiddle. No doubt his wife urged him to get up and do something useful. But I am sure that he was a stalwart enough lover of things to pay no attention to all her nagging. And how wonderful it would have been if he had known what we know about all of his dawdling. He could have silenced her with the greatest repost of all time. Don't bother me. I'm creating the possibility of the Bach unaccompanied sonatas. But if man's attention is repaid so handsomely, his inattention costs him dearly. Every time he diagrams something instead of looking at it, every time he regards not what a thing is, but what it can be made to mean to him, every time he substitutes a conceit for a fact, he gets grease all over the kitchen of the world. Reality slips away from him, and he's left with nothing but the oldest monstrosity in all the world, an idol. Things must be met for themselves. To take them only for their meaning is to convert them into gods, to make them too important, and therefore to make them unimportant altogether. Idolatry has two faults. It's not only a slur on the true God, it's an insult to true things. Meaning that we can't even engage with things right if we give them too high of a priority, higher than God himself. So paying attention to the thing as a thing from God, as it is, is itself a form of thanksgiving. Uh, and as we stop and pay attention, we will not only show gratitude, we will grow in our gratitude. We'll be enlarged by noticing the world because we know God through it. That's one of the ways God has given us to know him. It's not the sole way. Obviously, it's not even the clearest way. We need special revelation even to read those things rightly now. But think about it. We can only know God rightly in part through knowing the world rightly. I mean, Calvin says this in his intro to the Institutes very, uh, very plainly. 
But if the fear of the Lord, for instance, is sweeter than honey, but you are, you know, uh, such an ascetic that you're like, I'm never going to taste honey or enjoy sweetness because I'm that spiritual. Well, then you'll never understand how sweet the fear of the Lord is, right? God assumes that you're going to stop and enjoy the sweetness of the thing, right? To enjoy honey for what is. And he says, do you, do you taste how good that is? The fear of the Lord, the fear of me is even better than that. That's how good uh, our relationship is and starting with me in the right places. But again, you have to know the creation rightly. You have to enjoy it rightly in order to enjoy God rightly, uh, even as he compares himself or, or, or teaches us through it. Um, paying attention, of course, is not easy. It takes discipline. Uh, as Lewis said, you know, the real labor is to remember, to attend to things. In fact, to come awake and still more to remain awake uh, and so forth. So to pay attention, I think, would be the third thing we would want to say. And fourth, uh, at least in your notes, it says bottom up, bottoms up. And all I mean by that is not only to pay attention, but to partake, to enjoy the good things of this world insofar as you can. To make use of a gift and to use it rightly is an act of gratitude. And this isn't rocket science. You know, I didn't have to go to seminary to, to teach you this. Uh, one of the highest forms of thanksgiving is simply using a gift. I mean, every parent knows this. You know, as you uh, shop for Christmas, I don't know about you, but I love, I love giving presents. Uh, uh, and I'm always trying to, like, find out what the list is and then say, we're not going to get anything on the list, you know, which is major backfire sometimes. But in my own mind, I'm like, I know this child better than they know themselves. But I love, you know, giving a gift. Why? Well, because of the delight that the child has in the gift that you've given, right? And what I want for them when they receive it is not to follow me around all day being like, thank you, Dad. Thank you, Dad. You know, I'm so glad you gave me. Thank you so much. You know, thank you would be great. But the highest thanks I could get would be seeing them enjoy the thing given and just delighting, right, in the gift that they've received, and God is no different in that regard. It's not like he needs us constantly muttering thank you under our breath. That is not the only way that gratitude is serviced. Surely there is a time to stop and give intentional thanks to God, right? The thank you note is an important you know, part of etiquette. Uh, but it's not the only part. That person that you sent the note to, they want to see you enjoying the meal they've made, right? That's a form of thanksgiving, you know, to see the hospitality offered and to relish it for what it is, you know, the scripture says wine is made in order to make the heart glad. And we as people are just terrible at this, right? We either say, you know, no wine at all because, you know, somehow the, the, the devil's in the details there. Uh, or we'll use wine to make the heart sick instead of glad. Uh, but right use, grateful use of wine is intended to do something to your heart. You know, if it's not changing you to a happier state, you're doing it all wrong, right? Uh, I think we're afraid, like, well, you know, we can have wine as long as you don't enjoy it too much. And, you know, if it doesn't, if you, if you start laughing, cut it off, you know. But it's given, right? It, it, and when rightly partaken of it, eases conversation, right? It, it breaks down barriers, those things that you may have found hard to say, but you've meant, right, in the deepest parts of your person. You're able to articulate to the ones you love. Uh, it makes for merriment and joy. Uh, these things were its intention, and God is not offended by you using it in that way. You know, Calvin says to not use the gift is to insult the giver. Uh, and we have somehow made spirituality to avoid the gifts, and that somehow will be pleasing to God. Um, I better speed this part up. What, what time do we have in this session, Till? Five minutes? Is that what I'm saying? 
Okay. <laughs> we can do this. I mean, think of Jesus' ministry itself. This does tell us something, you know, about the nature of God and delight. You know, he's called a wine-bibber and a glutton, and, and, you know, while surely he was not, you know, stereotypes are created for a reason, um, <laughs> Jesus' celebrations in the gospel were hardly demure, uh, apologetic kind of quiet dinners in the company of close friends, you know, that were all very respectable. He did, you know, act in extravagance, and sometimes the celebrations, you know, overflowed into extravagance. Uh, obviously, John, one of the one of the you know eight signs he's willing to give that this is the Messiah is Christ, you know, creating 180 gallons of the best wine you could find and giving it to people whose palates were already so dulled from the wine drinking they've already enjoyed, and saying, "Here, have this at the end of the party." Uh, and John says, "See, that's how we know he's the Messiah." Uh, and there's a lot of prophecy behind that. But uh, it does show us that exuberance is part of the ministry of God and delight is part of what he's coming to bring his people. And it's not something that, again, we should be ashamed of or afraid of. When you think of, you know, the alabaster flask of ointment, you know, that is poured on Christ, you know, one of the objections, you know, from Judas, you know, the biggest chump in the, in the history uh, of, of, you know, our story, his big objection is what? How dare she be wasteful like that? How dare she act in delight in such a way that she wastes something that could have been done, uh, given to the poor, and used more right, uh, uh, wisely, um, could have produced more good? Do you know that in reality, in, in uh, Israel, in, on that day, when that ointment was poured out, there were poor families that could have used that money. I mean, that's true. And so Judas's objection seems to make total sense on the face of it. Instead of Christ saying, you know what, you're exactly right, he extols what appears to be, in our eyes, wastefulness because she's delighting in the right things and this is her only way of expressing how grateful she is to God is by giving away lavishly things that are good in her life uh, and, and letting those things be enjoyed and, and um, uh, received by others. Uh, our exuberance uh, and our delight is part of what God is seeking for us uh, in, in how we respond to creation. Uh, God wants us to use the world. He wants us to enjoy it. He made it for his pleasure, and we are made in his image, which means it is also for our pleasure. And if we do it rightly, we will be enjoying him uh, as we partake of it. You don't need to feel guilty about loving good things. Your call is to enjoy them. And let all of that rushing joy send your thoughts to a contented thanksgiving when you're partaking of those things. You know, there's a lie that you can love things too much. And that's just not true. You know, you ever had someone make you feel guilty? Like, well, you know, don't love your kids too much. You know, and then there's all these, you know, you can't love something too much if you're loving it rightly. Right? The more you love it, it doesn't drive you farther from God if you're loving rightly. It just drives you deeper into the heart of God, saying, if you gave me something I love this much, how loving must you be? How good must you be? What kind of God must you be that this is something that is in my life for me to enjoy and appreciate? Lewis got it right when he was writing in the screw tape letters, uh, letter 22, where um, uh, screw tape says this concerning God. He is a hedonist at heart. Out at sea... Out in his sea, there is pleasure, and then there is more pleasure. He makes no secret of it. 
At his right hands are pleasures forevermore. He's vulgar, Wormwood. He has a Borgios mind. He has filled his world full of pleasures. There are things for humans to do all day long without his minding in the least. Sleeping and washing, eating, drinking, making love, playing, praying, working. Everything has to be twisted before it's any use to us. We fight under a cruel disadvantage. Nothing is naturally on our side. And we have somehow flipped that to where the world is on the devil's side uh, and we somehow have to avoid it if we're going to agree with God. But if creation is good, our use should show that it's good. Right? The way we interact with it should show the world these are good things. Uh, and if the good news is good, then our celebrations concerning it should reflect a tangible joy uh, concerning that news. Uh, Charles Simeon said, Enjoy God in everything. And everything in God. Uh, the last thing in two minutes or less. Uh, this is not going to work, but we're going to make it work. Um, live it up. I have 12 minutes? Oh, geez, then I shouldn't have been talking like the, the little micro minis guy for their sake. Perfect. Uh, then I may finish early and you'll love me. That would be great. Um, live it up. Do good works. And this is something we mentioned earlier. We really are called to do good works, right? We've been redeemed in Christ. Uh, predestined for the foundations of the world, pulled out of wrath and into grace in order to walk in the works that God has prepared beforehand. But even our works, even our ethic as Christians is an excess in that it's not needed to be God's child. Uh, and again, talk about things that are hard to stomach. Uh, this one, even if we believe it, we don't believe it. You know, we are saved before the foundations of the world in Christ who has done all that is needful for our life and godliness. I mean, does God need us to do good works? You know, that's a question we often answer, ask at least in some form, whether it be in, in EE, in the way you evangelize, or how people are coming before the session uh, for the supper. Um, so if, we, if they're not needed, if we don't need good works in order to be acceptable before God... If he doesn't need them to kind of complete his project, if it's all going to be subsumed uh, by the works of Christ, why do we do them? Well, one, because we're so ridiculously, ridiculously thankful and joyful for our condition that good works shouldn't be able to be contained. I mean, this should be a natural outflow of our gratitude. Uh, if we are exuberant about something, if we really appreciate something, if you love something in the world, you can't help but talk about it, uh, adore it, cherish it, right? Uh, and so with God, and so with his world. If we love these things rightly, we can't help but do good with people and things, right? How can loving your neighbor as yourself take the form of anything but a frivolous exuberance? To even get to the point of loving someone else as you love yourself takes actions and thinking way, way, way past pragmatic or purposeful intent. It can only be excessive. Meaning, if you're going to love someone, what do you have to say? You have to say, you know, as far as the, the rules of this world and my own fallen nature, I'm going to have to waste some time and waste some energy on someone else who doesn't deserve it. Because, I mean, I can hide the fact that I don't deserve it. I always feel like I deserve it, right? Uh, and so I, dawdling, uh, you know, and taking care of myself and serving myself, that comes utterly naturally. You have to somehow think in a wasteful way, you have to be convinced, right, that, that you're not that big of a deal to, in such a way 
uh, and you have to be convinced of God's goodness in such a way that you're saying, you know, I'm willing to give away my time and energy and goods uh, uh, and uh, my love to those who are outside of me. What would it mean to forgive like the Bible talks about or to give away like the Bible talks about? To love as we are told, to be as generous as the Bible seems to say. It is so excessive. So what do we do? We choose instead to be economical and practical and draw boundaries. <laughs> we become quote-unquote wise because we don't want to be doormats, that's for sure, and we don't want to spoil. Uh, you know, we don't want to be uh, those who are getting in the way, which is all good, it's just not Christian. Uh, love suffers a long, long time. Love does good to the undeserving. Love never inflates itself, but always makes much of the other. Love covers everything, believes everything, hopes everything, endures everything. It forgives and forgives and forgives, and then the 77th time, it forgives again for good measure. Love is not practical. It is not measured, not when it reflects the love of God. And if you're not willing to buy into that, and the only way you can buy into that is to say, my life in one sense doesn't matter, right? Everything's already all good. <laughs> so there's nothing I can give away that's going to make me any poorer in the giving it away, right? Because my Father in heaven has excessive resource and has promised me the entirety of his kingdom hidden in his Son. There's nothing I can lose that I'll ever lose. And I don't need to inflate myself. Why? Because he's given me a name that's now tied to the name that's above every name. He's given me a place that can't be stolen, so I don't need to fight for a position here. There's only one way to do this stuff, and it's to believe that God really is this good, and then to look at the world, you know, uh, in the sense that Bilbo's now looking at, because I'm not that big of a deal, well, I can just serve everybody else. Um, how can we live like this? Only those, again, who see how great the gift is, who can taste just a bit of the superabundance of God's liberality in creation and redemption. Only those sort who see how small they are who see what they actually deserve, and then run headlong day after day into the constant and varied kindness of God that they meet in creation. They run into it with their eyes and their mouths wide open. Those who see on top of that the mammoth kindness of the cross, only they will be joyful enough, young enough, to go out and get over themselves and give themselves away. And so we will close again with a dry toast, but there's coffee so we could, you know, you can get some of that. Uh, and I'm going to butcher uh, the second language here. I know the first one, but not the second. To the world, which belongs to those with tongues to taste it. Nazdravie. To God who gives the world to those with tongues. Er libe hoch. And to the vast paradox by which the one enjoys the other. Bottoms up. That God really does not give us things to enjoy. He oddly enjoys us. <laughs> uh, and if that doesn't set you free free to love people and things, then nothing will. You know? And it really does come down to buying into that uh, in a way that, that is reflective uh, in how you live. All right, that's all I got. I'm going to close in prayer just briefly because that's what, that's what you got to do. Right? Um, and then you'll be released for, for a break. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you are who you are. Uh, we thank you that you revealed yourself. And even in that revelation uh, we will never know you uh, fully. We'll never comprehend you completely. Uh, that only you know yourself in yourself. 
Uh, and Lord, even the parts we know are far too great for us to understand. Lord, how we would love, as Paul has prayed, to understand the height and depth and width and breadth of your love. Lord, give us a taste, just a little, that we might grow, that we might grow uh, into young, whole-souled people that live in a world, Lord, that you have made in delight and delight enough, Lord, uh, to give ourselves away for your glory. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.